Children here can be dismissed to Children's Church, kindergarten through second grade. You can find that through the door over here by the piano. But the rest of you open up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 11 on page 686. Isaiah chapter 11, page 686. As we continue our series in the Old Testament prophetic book of Isaiah, just a great, great book of the Old Testament, one of the, the uh, leading prophetic books. Isaiah chapter 11, and this morning we're going to study verses 1 through 5. It says, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the Spirit of counsel and of power, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. Have you ever uh, been hurt or seriously let down by somebody in a position of leadership or authority? especially by someone in a position of spiritual leadership? Have you ever been involved in a a church or some ministry or a Bible study only to have uh, just your your view of of the church and things just crushed by the behavior or by things you've seen from those who are in a position of leadership? I remember I had an experience like that when uh, I was in high school. Um, I went on a short-term summer mission trip to a country in Asia between my junior and senior year of high school and um, uh, on this trip this, this thing happened that, that we didn't have the money that we had put in for the, for the trip there were a bunch of missions teams that were sent out at the same time from this agency one team went to Europe and one team went to Asia that was our team the problem was they accidentally sent the money for the Asia team to Europe and the money for the Europe team to Asia which was good for them and bad for us because our cost of living and our budget was way higher in this country we were in in Asia so they were you know living high in the hog with our money and we were really, uh, you know, poor and, and we had to skimp on food and things. And I remember it at the time because I was 17 and I was in a raging growth spurt. I was constantly hungry. So I guess by that definition I'm still in a raging growth spurt. Um, but I, I was really growing and I just thought, of, you know, you con- when you're 17 just constantly thinking about food. You know, you just, where can I get more food and how, you know, which is why youth ministry always involves food. Uh, so, in fact, I used my own spending money for food. I was so hungry, instead of buying souvenirs and things that I had saved money for, I, I would take my money and go down to the little noodle shop on the corner and get noodles with some like fried pork on the top, and I just was so famished all the time. And finally, I found out what had happened. I heard about this snafu, and so I was really upset. I was like, we don't have our money. You know, where's our money? So I went to the leader, uh, one of the leaders. There was a male and a female leader of our team. And I went to her and I just started teeing off. I'm like, I can't believe this. And, you know, this is so wrong. And I was just explaining you know, how frustrated I was. And I was spending my own money to buy food. And you'd think after doing all this, I'd at least have enough food for us to eat. And, uh, and basically what she said to me was, I don't remember her exact words, but it, basically it was like, look, I think you have an attitude problem. 
and it's your attitude that's a problem and you need to really focus on Christ. And I mean, that's true. I, I, I was angry and I should focus on Christ. But you know, I, I felt angry when she said that because I felt like she was doing a little spiritual judo on me. You know, like, like what she should have said as a leader is, you're right. This is, this is wrong. I'm gonna, we're going to call back to the States and see if there's anything we can do to straighten this out. But in the meantime, you know, you need to just trust in Christ. You know, if she had said something like that, I would have been like, okay, cool. But it was more like, you know, no, 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 you're the problem. You know, not that she said that explicitly, but that was the message. And I, oh, it made me so mad. And I felt like someone in a position of leadership was kind of using spiritual talk to kind of manipulate me and sort of put it back on me. And of course, it was a small thing. It's not a big deal. Obviously, I made it to my growth spurt. Uh, and obviously, I'm very well fed. But so, and, you know, and it was a great trip. And those people were great leaders. You know, if, if they were to stand here today, they were awesome. I, I really respect and admire them. But isn't it amazing how one little incidence of mistreatment by someone in a position of leadership, it just sticks with you. And the reason is because people in leadership have greater influence and power and there's something that happens when there's some even little misstep like that, which is why it's so terrifying to be a pastor. It's utterly terrifying. It's why it's so terrifying to be an elder, which is why we have to not just pray for our elders once when they get appointed, but keep praying for them. Because elders and pastors and Sunday school teachers and youth pastors and Bible study leaders are just human beings. They're going to make mistakes, they're going to sin, they're going to fail. But when they do, the consequences are so much larger than when someone who's not really known in a congregation sins or fails. So that's why this is such a a big deal. Well, I, I bring that up because our text today, Isaiah chapter 11, takes place in a time in Judah when there was a massive leadership meltdown taking place. And it was having... Um, dramatic consequences on the people of Judah. Uh, for those of you who've been with us the last couple Sundays, we've been studying Isaiah chapter 7 through 11. It took place in a certain historic period in Israel, uh, 730s BC. Do you remember who the king is at this time? Right? Anyone say it? Someone say it? We've been here. Raise your hand. Who, who's, the, who's the king at this time? Ahaz. All right, I heard it somewhere. That's good. Yeah, King Ahaz is the king. He was an utter failure. Terrible king, awful king, bad king, bad, bad. In fact, if you uh, take out your sermon notes for a minute and look at the front, you'll see a, a section there at the top from Second Chronicles 28. This is another part of the Old Testament, not a prophetic book, but a historical book, and it tells the history of King Ahaz. And it gives us, you know, the thumbnail uh, encyclopedia sketch of who this guy was. It says, Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 16 years. Unlike David, his father, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel and also made cast idols for worshiping the Baals. The Baals are the false gods of the Canaanites. He burned sacrifices in the valley of Ben-Hinnom and sacrificed his sons in the fire, following the detestable ways of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He offered sacrifices and burned offerings on the hilltops and under every spreading tree. And this was a terrible king. He led the people in the exact opposite direction of where they should be going. He led them into idolatry, into sin, corruption. And as they say, you know, the fish rots from the head down. And, and when uh, the king was corrupt, 
it had this effect upon the rest of the people who followed him, starting with the leaders who were underneath him. Uh, if you look at the next two quotes, these are from Isaiah, and it's kind of a little snapshot of what the leadership was like underneath the king. Isaiah 1.23, Your rulers are rebels, companions of thieves. They all love bribes and chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before them. Or Isaiah chapter 10, 1 to 2. Woe to those who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees, to deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed, from my people, making widows their prey, should be EY, their prey, and robbing the fatherless. So there was a leadership meltdown taking place among the people of Judah. Anywhere you looked, you just saw corrupt, abusive, warped people who instead of leading the nation toward God, were leading people toward the false gods in the total opposite direction. But there was another problem with the leadership, as if this wasn't bad enough. Not only were they corrupt and evil, but the second problem was, because they were corrupt and evil, God was now about to remove the monarchy completely. As if it wasn't bad enough they had evil leaders, now they're going to have no leader. Because they had uh, not followed the ways of King David, they were now going to be removed from the lineage of David. David's throne was going to be removed from Israel, which is kind of an amazing thing because God promised to always give David a descendant on the throne. And now God says, I'm going to remove the throne. Look at uh, Isaiah chapter 11, which is our text. And if you look at uh, the two verses before Isaiah 11, Isaiah chapter 10, verses 33 and 34, this is the ramp up to our text. And it says, uh, See, the Lord, the Lord Almighty, Isaiah 10:33, will lop off the boughs with great power. The lofty trees will be felled, the tall ones will be brought low. He will cut down the forest thickets with an axe. Lebanon will fall before the mighty one. This is called God's tree service. You don't want God's tree service to pay you a call, okay? Uh, God's going to lop off the branches. He's going to cut down the trees. What's this talking about? Well, it's obviously a metaphor. And the tall trees in particular are a metaphor for the leadership and the rulers. And that's a common metaphor in the Old Testament, that, that the tall, big trees is an image of powerful leaders and rulers. And God says, I'm going to chop them down. They have so failed. King Ahaz has so abandoned the ways of his great-great-great-great-great-grandfather David that I'm going to remove completely the, the uh, lineage of David from on the throne of Judah, which is an amazing thought. You know, I can't believe it, but it's going to get chopped down. This is the end of the story. The lofty trees will be felled. The tall ones will be brought low. So now what are we going to do? What's going to happen? Who's going to rule Judah? And that's when you come to chapter 11, verse 1. You can see how amazing this verse is. Look at chapter 11, verse 1. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. Despite the fact that the kings and the people have turned away from God, and despite the leadership meltdown, and despite the fact that God is going to judge his people by metaphorically chopping down the whole forest, God is going to do something new in the future. There's going to be a new shoot from the stump. You know, have you ever seen a stump that's been cut down, and then it starts sending up those little, little guys from the edge? That's, that's the imagery here. I have a, a couple of roses in my backyard that Jennifer and I planted when we moved in. This is kind of a shed in our backyard, and we, it's a sunny spot, so we put in these two big hedge roses, 
and they're actually called Royal Bonica is the name of the hedgerows. It's beautiful, vibrant pink flowers. We love these roses, but you know, this was a really hard winter. For those of you who have plants and things, we lost a lot of plants this winter, and uh, we, I think we lost that rose. As I'm looking out there all spring, waiting for the, the stems to start greening up, they're not greening up, they're not greening up, and I'm like, oh, we lost our Bonica. We love that rose. So I go out there with my loppers, um, to start lopping off the dead roses. I'm lopping off the branches, cutting them down to the roots so I can dig it out. And then I, you know, I, I get them all cut away, and I go down by the roots, and we, we planted a bunch of geraniums for ground cover. And this is way too much information for you. But there's a... <laughs> really pretty geraniums. And then uh, they're, they're all around the roots of this rose, and I'm pushing away the geraniums, and there at the root of the rose is a tiny little red start. And I'm like, Jennifer, it's alive, you know. And <laughs> so she comes over, we're like, yay. So, and both of them have little shoots coming up. So we get the fertilizer and we start fertilizing it. And sure enough, if you go to my house today, you'll see they're about this tall now. It's an amazingly a vigorous rose and it's just growing out. And that's, that's the kind of joy that's behind this passage. Look, there's going to be a new, it's alive, it isn't dead. Yeah, we are going to be judged, but look, God's going to do something new in the future. He's going to raise up a new little shoot this new little sprout, and it's going to become a new ruler. A new great tree is going to start. It's not all over. So this is an amazing prophecy of hope. Notice three things about this future ruler, about the shoot, the branch. There's three things about him in verses 1 through 5. The first is his genealogy. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, and from his roots a branch will bear fruit. Now, who is Jesse? David's father. I heard someone say that. David's father. So in other words, it's another way of saying another descendant of David is coming. That God has not forgotten his promises to David. God has not totally abandoned it. He promised David David would have someone on the throne. David's going to have someone on the throne. So the first thing we see is that this is going to be a descendant of David. The second characteristic of this leader is in verses 2 through 3. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. So the second thing we see is not only is he a descendant of David, but the Holy Spirit rests on him and empowers him to be the kind of ruler that he needs to be to rule the people. Uh, you know, in the Old Testament, when someone was selected as a king, a prophet would typically come, or the high priest would come, and they would take oil, right? And they would pour it on the head of the king. And as that oil sort of ran down over the king's head, it was a symbolizing that God had chosen and empowered through his Holy Spirit that person to serve him and gave him supernatural ability, really, to lead the people of God. So that, that's the image here. The Holy Spirit's going to anoint this person. And this person is going to be marked by wisdom and understanding. So critical if you're going to be a leader. You've got to have wisdom. Counsel and power. This is kind of military language. Counsel is like being a good strategist specifically and, and power is the strength to, to conquer. And then the spirit of knowledge and here's the most important thing, the fear of the Lord. And it's so important he repeats it. He will delight in the fear of the Lord. More than anything else, this king is going to be godly. Not going to be like King Ahaz, worshiping other gods. He's not going to lead people astray. This is going to be a godly, Holy Spirit-empowered king. So he's a descendant of David. He's divinely anointed and empowered for ministry. And the third thing we see about this king is that he has a just and righteous reign. He does the right thing. It says in verse 3, He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. He's not going to go by outward appearances. He's going to see through the outward surface. 
But with righteousness, verse 4, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. This is not some king who's so high and mighty, he's just going to trample over the small people. He's going to take time to uh, look out for the needs of those who are oppressed, the widows, the orphan. This is a a kind and merciful king. But he's not a wimp either. Because look at the next verse. It says, He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. So he will not only help out those who are poor and oppressed, but he will also destroy all those who oppose his rule. Who is also a conquering king. And then the summary in verse 5, Righteousness will be his belt, and faithfulness the sash around his waist. I'll tell you, this is a good king. This is the king. This is the ideal ruler. This is the kind of guy you would die for if you could serve him. Throughout Israel's history, there have been different leaders, different rulers. They all failed in one way or another. There was Adam, of course he blew it in the Garden of Eden. There was Abraham, great ruler, but even he had his flaws. He's that whole little incident with King Pharaoh lying about his wife, saying this is his sister. Not, not the perfect guy. And then there's Moses, great leader of Israel, but even he failed because, well, you remember that incident where he smacks the, the rock with the stick instead of just obeying God, and God says, well, because of that, you're not going in the promised land. Moses wasn't perfect. King David, the man after God's own heart, has an affair and kills the girl's husband to cover it up. That's a man after God's own heart? (laughs) He was a failure in his own way. Uh, Elijah, the great prophet of Israel, after uh, whooping the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, what does he do? He freaks out and he runs into the wilderness and is like, oh, I can't go on, I just want to die. And God's like, what are you doing? Come on, get back in the game. So, you know, even Elijah fails. And and then, of course, Ahaz, obviously he failed. You go down the line of the kings and the leaders, and there's great ones and there's bad ones, but none of them are the right one. None of them have totally done it. And so, in a sense, the whole Old Testament just cries out for God to raise up the true leader, the one we're looking for, who's going to get it right. And so Isaiah 11 prophesies about this coming ruler that God is going to raise up. And who, of course, is this ruler? Who, of course, is this great king? Who is the shoot from the stump of Jesse? Who is the root from uh, the branch from Jesse's root? And the answer, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ is the great fulfillment of this prophecy. What I want you to do is put a little bookmark here or something. Turn over to Matthew in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 1. It's on page 955. 955. And I want to look at some vignettes of Jesus' life. Specifically, what I want you to do is keep in mind those three general aspects of the ruler from Isaiah 11. Descendant of David, empowered by God to obey Him, and then a just and righteous rule. And I just want to look at, we're not going to look at the whole book of Matthew, but just some snippets, some um, vignettes here and there of Jesus' life to see some of the ways in which He fulfilled this. The first is Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So it's a minor point, but the point is this is, this is a descendant of David. He can show you his family tree back to King David, which is important because the Messiah had to be a descendant of David. Uh, the second one, look at um, Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3, verse 16. This is jumping forward now from Jesus' birth. We're jumping forward about mm, two and a half, three decades. Not quite exactly sure. Jesus is about to start his public ministry. He's now a grown man. 
He's about to go out and be the, the miracle worker and preacher and to die on the cross. And it begins with his baptism. Look at verse 16 of chapter 3. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, the heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending on him like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Now what's taking place in this baptism? It's the royal coronation. This is the anointing of the king. In the Old Testament, the prophet poured the oil on the king. This is the coronation of King Jesus. Except instead of some prophet, it's God the Father pouring out God the Spirit on top of God the Son. And here Christ is being anointed the king. And as, just so you know, I'm not making this up. Look at the quote at, at the end of uh, verse 17. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. That's an allusion back to Psalm chapter 2, which is a royal coronation psalm. So here is God crowning the Messiah, the anointed one, and proclaiming him his son, proclaiming him to be the king of Israel. This is his anointing. And what immediately happens after the Messiah is anointed? Chapter 4, what is it? Temptation of Jesus. He goes into the wilderness, and now we're going to see, will this king blow it like everybody else, or will he get it right? Is he going to blow it like Adam, like Moses, like Abraham, like David? Or is he going to get it right? Is he going to obey God? Is he truly going to fear the Lord? And of course, Christ comes through, perfectly obeys the Father in the wilderness. Unlike everyone before him, he perfectly does the will of the Father. This is the king we've been waiting for. But not only is he a descendant of David, not only is he divinely empowered to be a, a godly king, the godly king, God the king, actually, but number three... He's also has a reign that's marked by justice and righteousness. He cared for the poor and the needy. He cared for those who were trampled by society, those who were shoved aside by the system. Uh, for instance, one tiny little snippet, Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. Of course, we could go on and on with this part. His whole ministry is filled with healings and uh, care for those who are downtrodden. But look at, for instance, Matthew chapter 8, verse 14. It said, When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her. And she got up and began to wait on him. And when evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him. He drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and carried our diseases. I mean, everywhere Jesus went, He was healing the eyes of the blind. He was touching the lepers. He was listening to those who no one else would listen to. And He was healing and feeding and curing. This was a, a king who cared for those who were downtrodden. But He wasn't a wimp either. Uh, he was also a strong king. Because remember, one thing from Isaiah 11 is this king is going to slay the wicked. You know, like, well, where did Jesus slay the wicked? Well, he hasn't yet. That's at the second coming. And we even get a glimpse of that in Matthew. Look at Matthew 24, verse 30. I wish, I wish we could just spend all morning digging into the fulfillments, but you know we only have so much time. Just one more. Matthew 24, 30 on page 982. This is a great prophecy about the second coming of Christ. Matthew 24, 30. It says, At that time at the time when Christ returns, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the nations of the earth will 
mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And He will send His angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather His elect from the four winds, from one end of the earth to the other. The nations will mourn. Why will they mourn? Because it's the judgment day and this King is coming to slay all those who will not follow Him. It's the mourning of the nations. And Christ comes in power and glory. First time Jesus came, it was sneaky. It was like stealth mission. He snuck in kind of under the radar, born in Bethlehem. A couple shepherds heard about it, otherwise wasn't publicized. And he's there in a little manger, not a place you'd look for a king. It's quiet. It's sort of like no one knows he's here. But the second time he comes, it's not going to be like that. It's going to be trumpet call, angelic hosts, the heavens splitting, Christ coming down in power and glory on a white horse with the sword in his hand. That's what it's going to look like the second time. And on that day, He will slay the wicked. It's, that's Christ at His second coming. And so Christ is the fulfillment of these hopes. He is the, the great King. God's plan for this broken and sinful world is Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ. God's plan for this broken and sinful world is not a new philosophy. It's not a new bestseller book. Uh, it's not a new ism. It's not capitalism, communism, socialism, liberalism, conservatism, environmentalism. You, you know, it's none of these isms that we create, although those things, you know, have validity and have their own place. But, but that's not what's going to bring this world back to what it should be. Uh, God's plan is not a new government agency or not a new government program or not a new collaboration between the nations, as important as those things are. God's plan is specifically the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ, who is the ruler, the king, whom God has sent to bring about his purposes on earth. So what does that mean for us? What's the application for us? And I guess the simplest application I can come up with, as I try to think pretty simply, uh, the, the simplest application I can come up with is follow the leader. That's what we should do in response to these truths. Follow the leader. If Christ is the King, if Christ is this Messiah, if He's the one God has appointed, King of kings and Lord of lords to rule the nations, if He is in fact coming back someday as the conquering hero, then I should follow the leader. I should follow and worship and love and obey the Lord Jesus Christ. When there's a leadership meltdown in uh, spiritual communities, in, in the church, among God's people... Uh, how do you find your way through that? If you've ever been wounded by somebody in a position of spiritual leadership and authority, maybe really hurt and disillusioned, how do, you, how do you overcome that and keep going in your faith? And I think the answer is, follow the leader. The key to making it through letdowns in the church is to keep your eyes focused on Jesus Christ and keep your love for Jesus Christ. You know, what happens when we get hurt by someone in the church? You know, what's, what's typical? Well, we're, we're disillusioned. We're discouraged. Um, we become cynical. We become skeptical. A lot of times people leave the church. They just like, forget it, I'm out of here. Maybe, maybe that's where you are. Maybe you're here in the church today, but it's like after 10 years, and you've been away for a while, and now you're just like sticking your little pinky toe back in the water to see if it's, you know, what it's like. And you're just checking out the church again because you've had been burned, been really disappointed by something in leadership. Uh, sometimes we stay in the church after that, but oftentimes we, we kind of then move to the fringe and you know, cross our arms and go, uh, I don't know. I'm here, but I'm not really here. I'm going to sort of hang off to the side and, and check it out. Uh, and, and you know, that's exactly where Satan wants you to be. 
Satan wants Christians neutralized. First of all, he doesn't want you to become a Christian, but if you're going to become a Christian, he wants you to be a weak, ineffective, neutralized, sideline Christian, because then you're no threat to him. And he wants to move you to the side. He wants you over there where you're not going to pray, where you're not going to lead, where you're not going to serve, where you're not going to reach out. He wants you just kind of on the edge, in the pit stop, not in the race. And so he uses these wounds in the church to say, see, see, you can't trust them. Off to the side. But the way through that, and I'm not trying to minimize that, but I'm I'm saying the way through that is to say, I'm going to follow Christ. Jesus Christ is who I'm following. I'm not following Jeremy. I'm not following all those elders we just prayed for. I'm not following South Shore Baptist Church. I'm following Jesus Christ. And and you say, "Well, well, if I do that though, Pastor, I mean, you know, what's going to happen if I get back into the church? What if I get hurt again? And the answer is, you probably will get hurt again. <laughs> because the church is full of sinners. You know? You're led by a sinner. We are sinful people. And you're going to hurt people too. But we confidently face it. We go in faith saying, yep, the church is not perfect, but I'm going to go in faith because I'm following Christ. And I'm going to follow that leader. That's how I think we move through difficult times in in communities of faith is when everyone gets their eyes back on the leader, Jesus Christ, the King of kings, Lord and Lord, the head of the church. But I think that that truth not only applies to followers, I think it applies to leaders too. You know, what should we say to leaders in the church? And I say the same thing. Follow the leader. For those of you elders who are just uh, prayed over, follow the leader. Now look at your sermon notes again. On the back, there's a quote from 1 Peter chapter 5. Here's another one of the many texts on eldership in the New Testament. Look at 1 Peter 5. It's on the back. It says, A call to spiritual leaders. He says, To the elders among you I appeal as a fellow elder a witness of Christ's sufferings and the one who will share in the glory to be revealed, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be. Not greedy for money, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Key phrase here, chief shepherd. The elders and pastors of the church aren't really the elders and pastors. They're just the under shepherds. There is one shepherd of the church, Jesus Christ. There is one senior pastor of South Shore Baptist Church, Jesus Christ. There is one chairman of the elder board at South Shore Baptist Church, Jesus Christ. And as long as we stay focused on him as leaders, we're going to be okay. The most important thing, most important qualification for leadership in the church I don't care if it's elders, pastor, Sunday school teacher, Bible study leader, ministry leader. The most important qualification for leadership in God's church is a humble submission to Jesus Christ. More than anything else, I want leaders in the church to be people who I can see in their life that they love and they follow Christ humbly. That their lives are yielded to Jesus Christ. That they are obedient to Him. Much better to have elders or anyone leading in the church who are godly, humble, Christ-like people with weak leadership gifts than to have someone with a strong leadership gift who is worldly, egotistical, selfish, self-promoting. Because the thing is that that I've noticed in just my experience is that the people who are humble and godly, the Holy Spirit's going to help them and use them in spite of their weak leadership gifts to do something. But the people who take their eyes off Christ, Satan uses those leader, the strong leadership gifts and he uses them to crush and to divide God's church. 
So the most important aspect of leadership is humility before Christ, recognizing that I'm just an under-shepherd. Actually, I'm a sheep with a stick in my mouth to lead the other sheep. And I'm following the chief shepherd. And so a good leader must be a follower. The best leaders are always followers. They know how to follow, and that makes them know how to lead. So follow the leader. Follow the leader is, is the application of this text. If you've been wounded, follow the leader. If you're a leader, follow the leader. And finally, just one more application, and then I'll be done. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, I just want to say the same thing to you. Follow the leader. Put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know Christ? Are you a Christian? I didn't say, did you go to church growing up? Because you know you can go to church your whole life and never be a Christian. A Christian is someone who's personally put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the fact is, the King is coming back someday. And on that day, it's going to be a terrible day when Christ returns, for those who don't know Him. Just the facts. Look again at your sermon notes on the back. Here's another picture of what that day will look like. It's from Revelation 19. Here's a vision of the coming return of the King. Not the meek little baby, but the conquering hero now. He says in Revelation 19, I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. Again, this imagery of Jesus suffering and dying for us. And his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which he will strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Christ is not here yet. He hasn't returned in that way. Why? Because He's being patient with us. He's being patient with us. He's giving us one more day to put our faith in Him and believe in Him and be saved. He's giving one more chance. He's he's withholding His wrath so that we might come to our senses, take pity on ourselves, and fall on our knees and say, Christ, I am a sinner. Forgive me and save me. But that opportunity does not last forever. Christ's patience has a limit. There is a point when God says, enough, and then He returns. And so I just would say, come to Christ today. Put your faith in Him today. The door is not open forever. It's open now, though. I heard a story from... Uh, read a story, actually. Uh, it was told by... Have you ever heard of Dr. Harry Ironside? He was a famous preacher of the early, early 20th century... Uh, so about a hundred years ago was kind of the heyday of his ministry. And Ironside tells a story in one of his books that he claims is true. He says he talked to the people who experienced it firsthand. So uh, apparently this is a true story. It's a story about a, a girl who was born into a Christian family, and that family, of course, was always telling her about Christ and took her to church and all that. And uh, But for some reason, she just wouldn't come to Christ. She wouldn't accept Christ. And instead, she kind of went her own way, lived, uh, you know, what the, uh, Ironside says, she, she, went, she ran with a hilarious crowd, which I think is sort of early 20th century language for saying she partied hardy. Uh, she, <laughs> you know, she lived this wanton life. She hung out with people who were focused on the moment and weren't thinking about spiritual things at all. Uh, well, eventually she actually became ill. 
the doctors tried to treat her with early 20th century medicine, couldn't figure out what was wrong with her, and, and they exhausted their medical knowledge on this young girl until finally they realized that she was probably going to die. Death was staring her in the face. And, you know, still her mother is, oh, come on, you know, as mothers do. Maybe you have one of these relatives who's always, you know, needling you about coming to Christ. You need to come to Christ. You need to turn to Him. And she wouldn't, she wouldn't. She was obdurate. She was uh, uh, unrepentant. And then one night, she woke up from her sleep and cried out for her mother. And her mother ran into the room. You know, what is it? And she said, Mother, what does Ezekiel chapter 7 verses 8 to 9 say? Her mother was like, what are you talking about? She said, I just had a dream. And in the dream, I heard a voice clearly say, read Ezekiel 7, 8 to 9. What does it say? The mother said, I don't know that verse offhand. Let me get my Bible. And so she went and got her Bible. Do you want to hear what it says in Ezekiel chapter 7, verses 8 to 9? I am about to pour out my wrath on you and spend my anger against you. I will judge you according to your conduct and repay you for all your detestable practices. I will not luck on you with pity or spare you. I will repay you in accordance with your conduct and the detestable practices among you. Then you will know that it is I, the Lord, who strikes the blow. And as the story goes, she sunk back into her pillow exhausted and a few minutes later died. God's Patience has a limit. When the door is closed, it's closed. And you cannot open it. But the good news is that right now the door is open in Christ. Christ is coming back someday in fury, righteous fury. But today He's here in love and pity upon our souls. And so let us take this King seriously. Let us recognize that He is the Lord and worship Him. Would you bow your heads with me in a prayer for a moment? If you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you're not sure whether or not you're really a follower of Christ, if you'd like to put your faith in Christ and become a Christian for sure, I'd invite you just to pray a simple prayer with me. What, what I'll do is I'll pray it uh, like a sentence at a time, then I'll leave a pause, and you can just pray it from your own heart and make it your own prayer in your own words. God, I do confess that I am a sinful person. And I understand that I deserve judgment and eternal separation from you because of my sins. But I believe that Jesus Christ died for sinners like me. Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Forgive my sins. Wash me and make me new. Lord Jesus, I pray that You'd pour out Your Holy Spirit on us, that You would make us like You, those of us who are leaders, those of us who are Christians, those of us in the church, that You might fill us up with the Holy Spirit, that we might have the spirit of wisdom and knowledge and the fear of the Lord on us as well. And God, I pray that we would take seriously Your Lordship, that You would help us to celebrate and have joy in our faith, but also to fear You, God, and to hold those two together. Lord, I pray for anyone here who doesn't know Christ, that You would just show them, Jesus, what an awesome Savior You are, that You would show them that life is so meaningless and empty without You.
that they might come with joy to you and find that in you is true life, in you is true light. And I pray this in your name. Amen. We have the praise.